I had one merchant to call me, and he said, uh, I want you to know that I've talked to my national office today, and they want me to tell you that we don't need nigger business. These are stories that help to support the White Citizens Council, the council that is dedicated to keeping you and I second-class citizens. Now, finally, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be demonstrating here until freedom comes to Negroes here in Jackson, Mississippi. A very special edition of Make It Plain tonight, folks. It gives me a great honor to introduce to you our very special guest. She is the chairman emeritus of the NAACP and, of course, the wife of one of the greatest martyrs in the history of our nation. All this week, really this past month, we have been honoring his sacrifice. Uh, she is his wife, Edgar Everett's wife, Merle Evers Williams. Uh, Mrs. Ever, Mrs. Evers Williams, Chairman Emeritus, how are you today? I am wonderful. And you? I'm just fine. I'm just fine. <laughs> it's really it's really a pleasure to to talk with you. We, we just heard um, your husband's voice mm-hmm. uh, from those days 50 years ago. Um, what I'd like to do is 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 get a glimpse of, of what it was like then what you all were facing Jackson was about to become or had had become the next front since Birmingham hadn't it that is correct you know in in listening to uh that segment uh, that you played of Metcalf's voice and listening to what he said about uh, boycotting all uh, the stores um that was something so very very special because we were not allowed in stores to, um, to I mean, to go through the front door and to purchase, to try on clothing and shoes. Uh, we always had to go around the back door in the alley. And uh, if you tried on a hat, it was stuffed with the tissue paper. You couldn't, you had to guess at your size with everything. And you, you, you mentioned that. I'm mentioning what I am because I have a newspaper here uh, from yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you will, mm-hmm. and uh, it says Medgar Evers, 50 years later, quote, this is a new day. Mm. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that's something I, I probably said in one of the many speeches that I've made uh, over the last month. It is a new day. It's a new time. But uh, I hasten to say that we should n- not lose sight of what the struggle was some yeah. 50 years ago. And we should not lose sight of the fact that it still takes determination, verbal uh, and physical. And I don't mean physical in the sense of um, crime or beatings, anything like that. But we must remember what happened in that time. Be able to look at where we are today. Have knowledge of what it took from Medgar and all the other people who gave so much to move not only Jackson, Mississippi, but the state of Mississippi and the nation as a whole to move it forward. We must not lose sight of that because if you look at the climate today, 
the racial climate today, um, we still have uh, issues that we have to deal with. And we mustn't forget that. And our young people must be made aware of their history and challenge them to think about the future in terms of what they can do as leaders in their community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Your husband, of course, was the first field secretary for the NAACP uh, in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. But, but he also had a relationship with, with Dr. King, didn't he? At one time, he was a part of the SCLC. I know he couldn't stay there, but there was that, <laughs> there was that relationship, right? Yeah, yeah, yes, there was a relationship, and it was a good relationship. And I, I gave that little ha ha uh, because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of the uh, integral part of the movement mm-hmm. uh, during that time. Uh, Medgar was certainly open to working with all of the groups, uh, civil rights groups, and there were none as large as the NAACP. Mm-hmm. Medgar's take was that the job is large enough for everyone to play a role. Unfortunately, uh, the leadership of the NAACP at that time did not see it. They saw other organizations that might come in and play a role as a threat to the NAACP. So Medgar did have a chance to King, uh, but shortly after that relationship started, uh, in terms of um, pooling resources, uh, he was ordered by the national office to um, not be involved with the yeah. other organizations, which really um, gave him more than food for thought. Um, he did not believe in discrimination, and not in that manner either, that the struggle that we all had in pursuit of justice and equality would take everyone working toward that goal. Mm-hmm. So it created um, almost an employment problem for him uh, with the NACP. Wow, wow. Now, speaking of all the... Few, intric- few known facts. Uh-huh. I know, right. I know, it, it is something. And, and another, I think, that, that may be a, a, a little-known fact, and you, you honor your husband so well, uh, folks, the field secretary of the NAACP in Mississippi had a secretary. There was a secretary to the field secretary. That was you. Indeed. That was you, wasn't it? Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I'll call it the backup person or, or whatever you wish, but I was his uh, support system. And mm-hmm. interestingly enough, um, when uh, we would leave home, uh, we could discuss personal business and what not on the way to work. But once we walked through that door, I became Mrs. Evers, and he became Mr. Evers. And people would tease us about it. Well, why are you so formal with each other? And Megas reply was, this is business. Uh, and we don't let the personal interfere. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Those 24 to 48 hours between June 10th and June 12th, probably uh, the most tumultuous, the most historically significant in the civil rights movement history. June 10th, Dr. King is quoted on the front page of the New York Times saying that uh, President Kennedy is too slow on civil rights. June 11th, Vivian Malone Jones and James Hood, the National Guard and Nicholas Katzenbach at a standoff at the front door of the University of Alabama. The night Mm -hmm. of June 11th, the president's uh, uh, major civil rights address. And then 
uh, late that night is when uh, your husband was um, was returning home. I, I won't ask you to re- to relive those details when he got home. We know we know what happened. But in the hours leading up to it, were you home watching the speech? Is that what was going on? Of course. Of course I was. Um, let, let, let me move just a little before okay. that time. When Medgar left home that morning, uh, he embraced the kids. He embraced me. And he said, take care. I'll talk to you later for him to even say he would speak to us later because the schedule was uh, so hectic working with young people and and other uh, soldiers of the movement at that time. But he went to his car, he started the car, he came back in the house, and he embraced us all again, which was highly, highly unusual. He went to work. He even called back home a couple of times during that day. Highly, highly unusual. But one of the things that he said to me, be sure, Merle, that you allow the children to watch President Kennedy's address. And I said, of course. So we did not hear from him uh, again after that. And uh, when President Kennedy uh, delivered his address, the children were up uh, watching uh, that, and it was a little late for them. And um, I continued to let them watch whatever TV show it was that was on that followed uh, in our bedroom, uh, that's where the TV was, our youngest son, Van, who was three years old at the time, and I was stretched out across the bed, and the kids said, Mom, Mom, that's Daddy. They knew the sound of the car, of the motor. Medica pulled into our driveway, and from the sound, I knew that he was coming in from the Wong Street uh, at, at that time because they changed routes as to how he would enter uh, our property. He pulled into the driveway, and there was this loud explosion, and I knew exactly what had happened. The children did as he had taught them. They fell further to the floor, pulled their small brother off of the bed, and they crawled to the bathroom, about to get into the tub. Medgar had trained the children well, and they had all decided that the bathroom and the bathtub was the safest place in the house if something happened, Uh, you know, gunfire or whatnot. I made a dash for the the front door, turned on the light, opened the door, and there was my husband at the doorstep with his keys in his hand. He had come in on uh, that side of the street that we said we would never come in at night. He got off um, on the driver's side holding a white t-shirt that said Jim Crow must go. The bullet um, tore out his chest and it should have been instant death but he lasted another 30 minutes or so. I could never get the blood off of the driveway, off of the concrete. And there always remained in my mind, my heart, and our children's, the sight of Medgar falling forward with those T-shirts and with his keys in his hand trying to get into the house. Needless to say, um, everything broke loose. Forgive me if I put it this way, all hell broke loose. Screams, screams, 
And I remember our children saying, Daddy, get up, get up, Daddy, get up. One of our neighbors uh, fired a shot, uh, and that was something that had been predetermined by he and Medgar to frighten away uh, a person who might be shooting at him. And I fell to my knees uh, next to Medgar and couldn't get him to budge. Neighbors began to come out, and a couple of men put him on a mattress uh, and took him to the first hospital, which rejected uh, his admission because he was black. They took him to a second, and um, he was admitted there once they found out who he was. Medical lasted another five or ten minutes, I'm told, after that time. And it was the talk of the medical uh, group, how could he live with his chest blown out, but he did. And he was able to say the words, turn me loose, mm. turn me loose, let me go. Mm. And that's something that even today, 50 years later, um, you don't forget. And I'm really surprised at myself with the anger that has surfaced over the last couple of weeks uh, as I have relived uh, all of that. But my children and I have been a part of a marvelous outpouring of understanding and support uh, in these last few days with uh, people who remember too and who took a part in uh, the efforts of pursuing justice and equality. But Medgar has truly become uh, a hero to so many, many, many people. And the last event that we had, the last two events, was a massive turnout of a gala in support of his memory and the Medgar Murley of his institute. And then yesterday, at his alma mater at Alcorn State University, uh, he uh, was recognized by the establishment, I guess I could call it that, <laughs> of a statue, uh, a very, very large statue on campus. Wow. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it's bittersweet, and I'm amazed at, at how much I remember of my feelings mm -hmm. uh, about mm -hmm. it all. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Alcorn, that's where the two of you met. That's Wasn't... where the two of us met the first hour, the first day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on campus, and it was shortly thereafter, without ever touching each other, holding hands, anything, this man looked at me and he said, you're going to be the mother of my children. Wow. I was 17 years old and floored. Uh, <laughs> he just said it just like that. He said it just like that. It. But um, it, it, I, I guess it speaks to him, uh, someone, a man who knew what he wanted. <laughs> and what he needed from the very beginning. <laughs> isn't, isn't that something? Um, let me just ask you this, and, and, and I, I really appreciate you sharing those details. I know that's very difficult to relive and know that, um, I mean, it, it's emotional for me. Uh, whenever I read about it, or when, and now to hear you say it, I mean, it, it, it's an emotional ordeal, but but I have to ask you, and I think it's inevitable, those of us who are human beings, when these tragedies happen in our lives, we go back and we think, what could have been done differently? Um, do Is there anything you've ever thought about? And, and by that I mean in terms of the way the campaign was organized, 
your husband's uh, security or lack thereof. Do, do you ever think back that, well, maybe we could have done something or others could have done more to have prevented that from happening? I think so, but uh, it's nothing to dwell on, uh, and I haven't, simply because Medved knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. We both are native Mississippians, and we knew what the price would be. He was the person in the forefront of the movement in Mississippi, so he was number one on uh, the kill to kill this, which was published years before um, by the uh, White Citizens Council and the Ku Klux Klan. So we knew what was there and what was going uh, to happen, but he was determined to do what he did, and that was to work to move um, his people forward and to make the state of Mississippi hopefully a better place. So yes, we knew there were other things that could have been done, and this is something that uh, I just shared um, a few days ago, which was really not public knowledge, but Medgar had uh, an ongoing Uh, I'll call it warfare, with uh, the NAACP top leaders uh, during that time. Because the young people in Mississippi were beginning to say, we're going to demonstrate, we're going to uh, bring notice to what's happening here. Mr. Evers, please work with us. The NAACP national office said, no, Mm -hmm. we're going to work through the legislative process. And Metzger was torn between doing his job as the NACP chiefs wanted him to do, and the young people and the elder people, those in the middle, uh, were too concerned about their jobs to really participate. And he chose to support the young people Mm -hmm. uh, in the movement, and uh, he was told that um, your job's at risk with the NACP if you continue in that way. Uh, that was also a very painful time for us, and this is something that I have just revealed publicly mm-hmm. uh, in this 50th anniversary, where um, representatives from the NAACP National Office were visiting here, and um, some of the leaders asked for support, financial support, to help hire some one or ones to be with Medgar to better secure his safety. And I know the quote from memory from that time, and it was, we have better things to do with our money than to pay someone to be with him. That I will never forget. That I have not revealed until this time and this moment. And uh, I'm glad that I have the strength to say it. Because it speaks to the difficulty that we as a people had during that particular time and that everybody did not think uh, the same way. I know Medgar, in his fatigue, uh, came home that night uh, after that discussion and um, sat down and cried. Um, Mm. He was very hurt by it, but he had made his decision. And the message was that the National NAACP did not care uh, about him. They just wanted more memberships or whatnot. Being his wife and the mother of his children, I asked God to help me 
relieve that from my heart. But up until this point, I have never been able to let go of that. Because Madeline was a man who believed in what he was doing. He believed in his people. He believed in his country. He was willing to sacrifice everything for that. And to be told by those that uh, he reported to that uh, he would lose his job if he continued to work with other organizations and groups and youth. Um, I guess you can tell from my voice it still bothers me a lot. And and, and I have, it bothers me. Um, I, I didn't expect that response. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> But but well, I, I, it's but, fi- it's it's fifty years later. Yeah. So. Um, but 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 think about this, and and I want the audience to understand this, and this speaks to your your grace for yeah. the secretary, you, to the field secretary Medgar, to know that the organization he served would not provide his security, for you then to come full circle and lead that national organization and be chair of the board and to not use that position to shame the organization or confront the organization over that awful slight publicly publicly okay <laughs> is is profound um it 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 really is and um and and it speaks so highly of you and it it further uh, uh, preserves the magnitude of his sacrifice and his memory. Um, it, it, it's incredible. That that's all I can say. Well, I must add this: uh, though the NAACP National Board met in Jackson, Mississippi, um, I had had this discussion with um, the president, right. uh, Ben Jealous, and at a luncheon. Um, and Ben didn't say much. He just kind of listened to me. Because I told him 50 years later, um, I'm still motivated by beliefs, positive beliefs, but also some anger that still existed with me. And I said, I'm telling you about this. At that luncheon uh, that was held with the board members, Ben put his speech aside. And he stood there and he said, I have an apology to make. Mm. And he apologized to me and my daughter and other family members for what the association leadership, top leadership, said to Medgar and the way they treated him. And how very shortly after that, just a few days, he was taken from us. Um... I don't think there was a dry eye no in the place at that time because people didn't know. It's something that only a few of us knew. Yeah, I yeah. never wanted to hurt the organization in any way, but that was the way the membership leaders thought at the time. And it's tragic, but uh, Medgar said, I'm going sometime, somewhere, and it will be from Mississippi. So he knew what he was up against, and... Um, that's it. But uh, perhaps 50 years means cleansing time as yeah, well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Megan Murley Evers Institute. Yes. 
how that is going well and in full swing, correct? We, we, yes, yes. We, we just made the formal announcement um, of the Medgar Murley of his institute uh, over this past week. People seem to be very uh, enthusiastic about it. We hope to set a role model example of an organization moving forward to bring people together in the sense that young people will expect it uh, to work with crisis management whatnot, within their own communities. So we, the public will be hearing more about that as we pull all of our issues together, but we do need that support uh, to be able to really establish something that's going to be significant, not only in Mississippi, but nationally. Lastly, as the Supreme Court considers Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, <laughs> most of us on pins and needles. Are you, Madam Chairman Emeritus, uh, taking this personally? Your husband gave his life for our right to vote. Mm -hmm. uh, do you lose sleep at night wondering what the Supreme Court might do? Of course not. <laughs> okay. Right. I, I, I do not lose sleep with it. Uh, <laughs> okay. I am certainly very, very interested. Rather than lose sleep, I would rather work within communities to help people understand the need to register and to vote and to realize that uh, even though we move past how many bubbles in the wall of soap, how many peas in the jar, that there is still that challenge, um, particularly for minorities, to get out and do whatever they have to do to be able to vote. Uh, that training and that awareness is, is so important. They need, they, meaning people, need to know that even though we don't have to do those things now, there's a possibility of having to have every kind of identification under the sun to be able to register and vote. There are the long hours uh, that are purposely um, set up to make us have to wait in line to register and vote. There are all kinds of roadblocks that are there. We must not forget, we must not give up, and we must find a way to go around anything that uh, keeps us from our right to vote in this country. Merle Evers Williams, folks, uh, the wife of the great Medgar Evers, uh, martyr begins with him. He was the first of three, Medgar, Malcolm, mm -hmm. and Martin. Yes. Um, thank you. Um, and and I'm, I'm really moved right now and, and emotional myself. Thank you so much for um, sharing that with us, for sharing your time with us. Thank you most of all for um, giving us your husband. Um, Thank you. Um, for it was sharing not him easy. It, it, it was not easy, but it was something that he was going to do anyway, and yeah. he needed all the support that, uh, that he could get, and he certainly needed that from home. And I hope, pray, think that I have given him that, and that's why I've been so passionate and have pushed so hard and so long to see that he is recognized because history books, um, the media has focused on one or two people and that's it. Yeah. And Medgar was there from the very beginning and before the others. Indeed. Um, Eversinstitute.org folks uh, run there. Be supportive. Uh, 
as we always say, um, we want to support these great institutions, and this is one we must support in his wife's honor, in my guest's honor, and in his memory, uh, the great Medgar Evers. Uh, thank you again for being with us. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for your contribution, your sac- sacrifice, your continued uh, activism, Madam Chairman Emeritus, and we love you. <laughs> Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. All right. Take care now. All thank right. you. Thank you. All right. Merle Evers-Williams, folks, this is MIP. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. As always, perform an act of kindness on behalf of an elder or young person. Write a letter to a sister brother who just so happens to find her or himself incarcerated. Offer libations to the ancestors upon whose sturdy shoulders we all now stand. And above all, give thanks to the God of your understanding by whatever name you call her and him. All God asks of us is that we give each other love. Thanks for giving MIP love. And please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain.